0: Welcome again to the Comic Book Historians Podcast. Today we continue part two of the Tom Warsuchowski interview, where we end off with the end of his X Men lettering career and the start of his career lettering pretty much every issue of Spawn with Todd McFarlane and beyond. Why did you leave Marvel
1: for Image? When Chris left, if I'd had any actual ethics of my own, I would have left at the same time in solidarity. But if he played the gig, and so I did about five or six more months with Fabian on the one book and Scott on the other one, and with all props to those two guys, or you know, professionals, they're both still at it. They weren't my X Men anymore, which sounds kind of childish in a way. It's you know, the Justice League changed writer, artist, and everything does after a while. Those guys were taking things down the directions, and then Scott's relationship with White Queen began, or you know, some such thing like this. And it just also it occurred to me I was signing books for at conventions for kids. Weren't as old as my tenure on the X Men, and I figured, okay, if I, if he wasn't even born when I started X Men, I've been here for long enough. And so I, you know, gave Bob Harris a call. You know, with all respect, it's, you know, I've done as many of these as I really care to, and well, you know, good luck, good luck. And the next issue came out without a break, of course, it's as if my departure changed the publication schedule. And I figured, well, what am I going to do now? I was over lettering, you lettering know, a ton of manga every month, which is its own interview, I guess. And who were you doing that for? Uh, directly, it was for an, uh, an operation called Studio Proteus, which is a sole proprietorship. And they were packaging for Eclipse and Innovation and then Dark Horse. It was a, a two-person operation. It was Dana Lewis, who lived in Japan. In fact, she was the Newsweek bureau chief. For Japan, translating like crazy for the wire services, she was translating the Emperor's speeches, which, you know, gives you a sense of her place in the echelon. She was born in Ann Arbor. She was an American stationed over there. She and Torrin Smith, the late Torrin Smith, were a couple of anime and manga fans like crazy, I happened to meet at a translator's club meeting in Tokyo one day when Torin was over there looking for properties for his communications. And, you know, their eyes met, they shook hands, they created this operation operational studio Proteus and yeah, I did Nausica for Biz Comics in 1989, which I let because I knew Toran. For Eclipse, Dirty Pear, Appleseed, Dominion, Black Magic, so many things. Ghost in oh, the no. Shell, later on for Dark Horse. And I was involved with all these things. How do you like manga yourself? I'm just curious, Tom. I liked working on the stuff. I've never followed it beyond the books we were producing, but it's kind of like what I was saying about Rick Leonardi and, and Arthur Adams and these guys get, getting X-Men books. The energy was just undeniable. It was incredible. Fun and giddy silliness was allowable in the manga and the anime both. Just churning up manga in unbelievable amounts for a number of years. And so when I quit the X-Men, it's not as if I had, I was destitute. But I didn't know any other editors at Marvel because I'd been the X-Men guy nonstop. And especially once I left New York, I had never made the acquaintance of anybody. And so if I didn't do brains, I would have just, you know, called the switchboard and said, hey, Can I talk to, you know, whoever the Avengers editor was, or you know, Grunewald or Larry Hama or somebody and maybe gotten three books that day. I figured, what am I gonna do now? And within about a week or two, Todd McFarlane gave me a call and he said, Yeah, he and the lads were forming this new thing called Image and he had this property called Spawn that he'd been kind of developing quietly for a while, and would have be interested in working with him? Oh yeah, that sounds good to me.
2: A lot of people probably don't realize that your wife and Partner as it is, is also a letter in her own right. Why don't you say a little bit about her real quick?
1: Yeah, Lois and I go way back, about 1983. I had a way of having apprentices. When I was 25, I, I needed my first apprentice because my workload is getting to the point that it was. And I would make sure that people who worked with me had a basis in calligraphy, which I guess I'd have to teach them in some cases. Kind of familiar with my graphics books so they could keep up with me. The people who worked with me kept getting their own gigs and then moving on. I guess I taught them quite well. And so I needed someone. And then uh, a mutual friend of ours introduced me to Lois because she'd been doing signage for science fiction conventions and things. So she was familiar with the alphabet and with calligraphy. And so I put her to work. And she learned real quickly. And so when I dropped New Mutants around issue 40 maybe because I was just overburdened, she took that over. I had a small studio called Task Force X. And that was Kevin Cunningham who later worked for Mark Silvestri. Kevin was on staff yeah. for him. There was Tomoko Saito, who was a studio proteus letterer, very good illustrator. And I'd get like three or four of us together in a room, and we'd do an issue of X-Men in a day. I'd do the copy placements. Different of us would do the body copy, the script lettering. I'd do the sound effects. I'd do the balloons. I would ram the thing out rather quickly. And they looked more or less like I did, so it was fairly seamless. But if you were to check any of the indexes for Task Force X, there's a fair number of issues. Lois and I sometimes did X-Men in tandem. I'd break it down, she'd do the dialogue, and I'd do the frilly bits on the side. She did a few things on her own with Trina Robbins. Kind of dropped away from comics. It's it's awfully demanding. It's always been awfully demanding, and not everyone's got the nerves for it. That's why things went digital in the middle 90s, just because deadlines became so utterly out of control.
3: Talking about Trina Robbins, I just want to intrude for a second and talk about Dope, which I thought was one of your most unique and interesting lettering jobs. I'm a big fan of that one.
1: Yeah, that was fun. That was for Eclipse Monthly, later 80s. And Trina always had this really clean, affectionate and graphic approach to things and a little 40s influence because she was a big fan of Planet Comics and these things in the 40s, never really warmed up to the Marvel look. Fortunately, in the 80s, there were so many publishers on the scene trying to distinguish themselves from the Marvel approach altogether, but the Trina was unnatural. And Sex Roamer, the creator of Fu Manchu, did a, a novel called Dope, which is just sensationalistic nonsense about the high-ups, the higher-level you know level British semi-royalty, the Birdie Worcester level people, I guess. London, yes, perfect. So atmospheric as heck, foggy nights and, you know, dope dens. and, And it ran for maybe a dozen chapters and it's finally been collected now, 25 or 30 years later. And so I got to do slightly atmospheric lettering, kind of 20s-based things, something I was always fascinated by anyway. And it was a really good time, because at that time, Lois and I were living in San Francisco in a building that Trina and Steve Layla were on the upper flat, and we were on the, the lower flat out of three flats. And so she'd just come downstairs with pages of pencils, and I'd letter those, and I'd walk up the stairs and drop them off, and she'd take them. I worked with her on a number of things at that time for Playboy and maybe High Times Magazine, and I forget where all. Kurt Busick wrote a four-part Wonder Woman series at that time that Trina drew and Lois lettered. They'd canceled the Wonder Woman book in order to keep the copyright away from the Marston family. Otherwise, it would have reverted to them. And then George Perez's first issue came out after Trina's fourth issue. So Trina did as if the final Golden Age Wonder Woman story.
3: Yeah, I remember that well. Because it doesn't stand out because of the art. Completely historic because it's the first
2: time that a woman actually drew Wonder Woman,
1: which amazes me because
2: I'm surprised Ramona Fredon never got a chance.
1: Isn't that weird? You'd think, of course, DC was always a very fiefdom-driven, I guess. Each editorial office was a, a completely unique entity. unlike Marvel, it was just kind of one big room, you know, the mythical bullpen, which never existed but close enough. So Ramona was drawing Aquaman. I forget the name of the editor now. I would have put Ramona on Superboy instead of George Papp, who had been drawing Green Arrow. Then Kirby would have had Green Arrow. Uh, but, yeah, should have, or else I would have put her on Wonder Woman, or else I would have put Mike Sikowsky on Wonder Woman. Instead of Ross Andrew, I would have put on Justice League.
3: Yeah. <laughs> now, for you in D.C., was Sovereign 7 the first first thing you did there, or the, the thing that you did there with Claremont? Yeah, after Chris took, like, six months off or so
1: from uh, the X-Men ordeal, he, you know, D.C. says, well, what would you like? And so Chris created his new team book and an artist. oh, God, a really sleek style. I can't remember the fellow's name now. Beautiful work. Kind of image-looking in a way, you could say. And so Chris came up with this bunch of new characters from elsewhere. And I lettered about four or five of those. And then my appendix burst. Was it was that? Dwayne Turner, wasn't it? Dwayne Turner, thank you very much. Yeah. And my appendix burst in the middle of an X-Men issue, as I think about it. I forget why I dropped Sovereign 7. I'm kind of surprised I did. But it must have been a deadline crunch.
2: What was the transition like for you when things started going digital as far as lettering goes? Can you walk us through what the process was and how you got to that point where you decided you would go that route?
1: Well, it was the only route in town. It was during Shooter's tenure, but you can't really blame Jim because Marvel was just in such a massive expansion mode all the time. I forget. I've lost track of how many titles they were publishing by then. And which meant a lot of new writers, a lot of new artists. And there was just not the same discipline you got from the Summer Brothers or, you know, Romita, Gil Kane, the the previous generation of guys. And without pointing any names in particular, the new guys just weren't able to match the intensity of, like, Jack Kirby's old workload. And so things fell behind and fell behind and fell behind. From the Marvel sense, and I guess the DC sense, there was really no choice but to find a faster way to go, a more economical way to go. Now, I'd started... Doing the manga was so labor-intensive because we'd get photostats of the Japanese artwork that still had all the Japanese dialogue and sound effects on it. And then we were flopping them backwards so they'd read um, left-right in American style instead of right-to-left in the Japanese style. And so we had to put new sound effects on top of the Japanese sound effects, either paint them on or paste them on. And so it was very time-consuming. And in order to speed things up, Tor and Smith said, well, why don't you get yourself a font design program? And digitize the dialogue, at least, so you can spend more time on the sound effects and still make an adequate wage on this thing. So in 1992, I got my first PC in Publishers Type Foundry, which is then the, the font design program. And it did not work with Windows as it existed at that time. And it was about a year or a year and a fraction before I actually had a workable font. So in about 93, I started hiring people to simply produce the digital output of the dialogue for me, which then had to be pasted onto the photostats. And I think it was around 95 that Richard decided he liked designing the appearance of the pages, designing the placements of things, but didn't really like doing the physical lettering. And so Comicraft was founded. He hired a staff of about a dozen, and they could turn a book around before lunch. just give two pages to each person on the staff, and boom, it's all done which meant that suddenly the race was on to develop things faster. At the same time, between that and suddenly everyone had a motive You could deliver the pages digitally. FedEx now overnight was too slow, so everything had to be done online instantly. By year 2000, after only about five years of the comic craft reality, I don't think any books were lettered by hand except Spawn, which I lettered by hand, and that was, you know, a sole owner, Todd's, you know, sole thing, and Savage Dragon with Eric Larson. I don't think any mainstream books are lettered by hand anymore. By 2000, I think around 2003 or so, I gave in also, because publishers' deadlines had just gotten, printers' deadlines had gotten too severe. And Spawn also was relatively off schedule, because Todd's always doing way too many things, designing toys and what have you. Buying baseballs. Well, there was that, and on tour all the time. Yeah, well, the baseball thing, that's... uh, That's cool, though, I thought. That was his fanboy passion. It's the first
2: time that anyone recognized the fact that there were people that made that much money from comics to where they could, you know, explore their passions to such a level.
1: Yeah, Toddy went to college on a baseball scholarship. Oh, I didn't even like, realize that. And he realized in like maybe his third year that only so many people are ever going to play pro ball. But an awful lot of people draw comic books. And so he subsumed the one passion for the other one and delivered his samples to the, um, the X-Men slush pile along with 10,000 other people. Steve Engelhardt was needing an artist for a backup feature. He was working with Epic Illustrators. who it was a creator-owned thing. He asked Dan Nocenti, who was then the X-Men editor, if he looked at the first lush pile, first submissions pile. I'm sure, of course. And he found Toddie in there. And so Todd's first published work was um, in the back of an issue of Coyote. From there, he went to D.C. and did Infinity Incorporated for a while.
2: His page layouts were really off the charts. He was unlike anybody that had come up to that point. And I still remember how his capes of characters would create the whole page format.
1: He's always been irrepressible. He's always going to do things his way, full bore. Nothing holds him back, which is why he like upset the entire toy tie-in industry, because his toys were going to be fabulous. They were just going to be fantastically sculpted, really well-painted, articulate in every way you can imagine, instead of the really cheap things that DC and Marvel were producing up to that time. Toys suddenly had to make Todd's standard. But he wanted his issues to stand out and be unlike anyone else's, especially with Spider-Man. You thinking, I want my Spider-Man to be the Spider-Man. So the webbing, the web shooter webbing suddenly looked interesting, and the intensity of the webbing of his entire costume was suddenly much more so than it had been during the previous artists after Ditko. And texture became Todd's thing. You know, backgrounds, big uh, contorted body shapes when he swinging into the city, more of a Ditko style. Yeah, Todd's an amazing fellow. And
2: that brings us to phase two of our interview with you today, Tom. And that means it's time for our two registered fanboys, Jim and Alex, to ask you a few questions. And they're chomping at the bit. I can just tell because I see them via video. And I'm going to let Alex start this round. Alex,
0: what do you have to ask Tom? Tom, I love all the insight you've given us today. You had mentioned Jim Shooter and the editorial direction of killing Jean Grey for the genocide of the asparagus planet. <laughs> Was that the only time he gave any editorial directorship? Or do you feel like you guys didn't have to deal with too much control on the X-Men book? You know, as
1: time went on, Chris had a pretty good sense what his editors wanted to see. I, I, I've no doubt there were just massive struggles, like, you know, arm wrestling, wrestling on the floor struggles. <laughs> partly because Chris's stories often didn't really seem to conclude. So but then again, life often doesn't seem to conclude either. Things just kind of drift away and become focused later on, perhaps. But, you know, as things went into the five-issue format for sake of the reprints, I think that was another thing he was chafing up against. Chris was shooter... He was a realist. He had his own sense of how things ought to be done. You know, he and Frank Miller had some notorious battles, but Jim was editor-in-chief. You know, someone's got to be in charge. It isn't just, you know, a free-for-all. As far as I'm aware, though, that was the only time that Jim really stepped in and said, you know, Chris, this your logic is flawed in relation to what I think is a more sensible, larger view of Marvel as a publishing entity, as a profit-making entity. You know, Chris and I were in touch quite a bit in those days. Sometimes he'd stay out in San Francisco for a week or so with us.
0: I can't think of any
1: other time offhand.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Another question, how the corporate guys could kind of drive Jim Shooter kind of crazy. Yeah, it was Shooter's
1: thing, because, you know, Jim Shooter, the good and the bad, was that, and he did a lot of good, Uh, I increased the company's fortunes enormously because he was being pushed constantly from upstairs from the money guys to simply make more and more and more money every year, which made him kind of crazier.
0: I gotcha. Were you doing most of your lettering from California most of that time?
1: Oh, yeah. I was out there from, oh, gosh, 81 until, like, 2005, and then out to Portland. So I was back in New York for three and a half years from 78 to 81.
0: And then, didn't really look back. Okay, so most of the lettering was all from California after 1981. Yeah, but by
1: then, as I say, everyone had a modem emailed across. Uh, Oh, sometimes six days a week between X-Men, New Mutants, Wolverine, maybe What If. I forget what else I was doing by that time. Star Wars for a while, Spider-Woman for a
0: while. When you were lettering those newer comics from, Chris, X-Men Forever and New Mutants Forever, did it feel like old times? How was that? Oh, it
1: utterly, especially X Men Forever. That was absolutely old times. I was like suddenly 15 years younger. The book didn't last forever, unfortunately, ran about a year and a half. A bi weekly, Chris had an arrangement with Marvel that would give him two books a month. That way, there'd be like a constant stream of X Men of his style. X Men Forever picked up the moment that he left Marvel in 1992. So the Avengers team was the 1990 new team, and Chris had to figure out, okay, well, how can I make this, meanwhile, different from 1992 without in any way conflicting with X-Men as it is today in, like, 2010, whatever, that was 2015. So he made some remarkable changes to the lineup almost immediately. And I figured, yes, it's everyone sounds like themselves. Kitty sounds like Kitty, and Gambit sounds like Gambit. It was lovely, and I was hoping it would go on forever. Also because they put my name on the cover. Not necessarily the first time that it happened, but it might have been the first time I Marvel.
0: And I love uh, reading Chris Claremont's stuff. I like how he puts a lot of explanation and things. Did you ever feel like, whoa, that's a number, that's a lot of letters for this page? H- did that ever come up? It was a lot of
1: letters. Fortunately, I've got a light enough grip on the pen that I was never getting cramps. I've known people that started to get carpal tunnel syndrome after just a few years professionally because they, they were, their grip was too tight. Part of, I guess, calligraphy training is you hold a much more of a featherweight on the pen staff. Chris's style involved typing back when it was, you know, in analog for, format. I guess you'd call it physical format. He would write on 8.5 by 14 paper instead of 8.5 by 11. They were the top seller in the line, more than FF, more than about the, the flagship titles. Like toward the later 80s, it was selling between a half and three quarters of a million copies initially. So when people said, oh, it's crap, you know, they should fire Claremont. It's just terrible. Why do they keep letting him write this stuff? Everybody was buying it. And it wasn't for its collectability necessarily, because it was as if it was being drawn by, you know, Frazetta or someone that would be immediately slabbed. Uh, Smitty was good. Ramita Jr. was good. Leonardo, you know, a lot of very good people on there, but it was kind of X-Men as usual, but it kept selling. And the consistent point was Chris's writing. So people can say, oh, it was all downhill after Byrne left. But the sales continued to climb.
3: Jim, I have four questions. Tom, my my first question would be, for a lot of fanboys, you can open up a book and recognize the artist or the inker almost immediately. I can do it usually by a single panel or so. In terms of letters, I've never been that good at it. How would I recognize your lettering versus somebody else's upon opening a single page of an X-Men comic?
1: Oh, I don't know. Comment was earlier about the sound effects I'd have just blasting all over the page. Since I've been on the book through four editors-in-chief and about literally ten editors, and I don't know how many assistant editors, they just let me do anything I wanted, and Chris let me do anything I wanted. So I would add sound effects when I felt they were necessary. I'm nothing compared to Ken Bruzenak, who lives for Howard Shaken all the time. He'll dominate an entire page with interesting sound effects, and I think my strongest point is in my work, which doesn't exactly deflect your question, is my copy placements, is deciding where the script goes on the pages. Because I approach it like Elephant's Fitzgerald, kind of like bebop singing, where you interplay with all the elements on the page instead of putting stuff at the tops of the panels and the bottoms of the panels. If everything has equal priority on the page, the hair, the dialogue, the captions, the fists, the capes, you kind of do a triage. Which thing can we afford to sacrifice so that everything reads in the proper order? Because the characters don't always speak in the order in which the artist has drawn them. So you have to kind of, you know, syncopate throughout the page. I think that's what I bring to it. Neither your jazz sensibility will bring you sympathetic with me, or else it's really too arcane and doesn't make any sense at all.
2: I always liked your tight style, uh, tight and smaller, like your dialogue style, because you would give more room then to the sound effects and to the power of the
1: page. The question that can ever be answered is whether Chris wrote so much because I could always make it fit or whether I worked small because there was so much that had to fit.
3: I think you answered my question exactly. The next question I had for you was in terms of instruments. I know artists have their own favorite instruments. In, In terms of letters, are there different ones and what were yours? Of course, in present day, we're all working with, you
1: know, Adobe Illustrator on Mac. Right. At that time, most, though not all, were working with speedball nibs and pen staffs. We honed them down on a knife sharpening stone, which is, I think, John Romita showed me how to do that. Some people used regular quill pens. John Costanza had honed his pen down. It was a, a crow quill pen to the point where he could do the dialogue. This is the regular weight and the bold weight with the same pen. It would just alter the grip slightly. I always had to use two different pens to get a bold weight versus a regular weight. But yeah, Speedball, which are still available in well-stocked art supply stores, they're 40 cents. nib when I started now, they're about like two and a quarter.
3: What was the difference between working in with a full script and working in Marvel Method for you as a letterer? Um,
1: well, again, we're talking about working by hand. It was, there was no difference.
3: If there was one artist that you would have liked to have gotten to letter for that you never had that opportunity, who would it have been? I think I worked with everybody. I never mm-hmm. let
1: Maurice really Severin. That would have been fun.
3: What about Alex Toth?
1: Well, he always did his own. I would. Yeah, have I detracted. know. That's what I was
3: thinking. Yeah, I would have detracted. In terms of your influences, and you talk about Artie Semick, but both in terms of letters that preceded you, but also... Other influences, what were the ones that you think are most significant to how you approached it?
1: Yeah, I had a few few keynote kind of aha moments. Certainly, once Stan started giving credits to Simic and Rosen and everyone else on the teams, I started to see that, oh yeah, Simic is the one that's more like a draftsman, and Rosen is a little wackier. Uh, They were both influential in their different ways, but seeing Zap comics only like four or five years into the Marvel age of things... It's like, holy smoke. You can do anything. So now it's a matter of understanding what anything means. What are the parameters of anything? A bit later, I started recognizing Gaspar Silly his work on all Julius Schwartz's books at DC. So, you know, Justice League, Adam Hawkman, Adam Strange, Atomic Knights, these things. Pure title designer. Once I became aware he was lettering the covers after 1968, you know, wow, this guy is, he is the best there will ever be. I mean, you know, all respect to Todd Klein and John Workman and Mike Heisler and everyone that's come up since. There's no touching Gaspar. Irish Schnapp was very doctrinaire and very much a draftsman and extremely good. But Gaspar, rest his soul, he was a true crazy man. A true... He was the, the best ultimate designer that we will ever see in this field. Especially now that everything's gone to digital.
3: So how was it that he was doing page one of, of the X-Men comics?
1: He was doing page one of all the Marvel comics after about 72 for two or three years. Or ah. Nearly. Yeah, uh, Simic had um, died, Rosen had retired, and then there's suddenly a dozen new people like me who didn't know much about anything about doing attractive title display work for a splash page. And so John Verporten, who was then the production boss, gave Gaspar a call and said, you know, we need title pages only. You won't be credited. We'll give you. I was getting five bucks a page. He was getting fifteen for the title designs. And, oh, that's
3: fascinating. I didn't realize that.
1: Yeah, they just wanted to have a consistently attractive look on the splash pages. And I realized after about six months, you know, I could use that extra five bucks an issue. It's more than nothing. And so after about my fourth book or so, fifth book, that I was doing an issue of something called Unknown Worlds of Science Fiction, John Bissema's pencils, Giordano inked it. My gosh, what am I doing in that league? I'm only a few months into the office. I figured. I'd better get good, so I won't detract from the appearance of these guys' work, as I was saying to your other question. It's, you know, that kind of self-consciousness kicked in. I worked on Ditko's pencils. I worked, you know, Gil Kane, Infantino. You know, there's my entire adolescence of pencilers, a great deal of it. I never worked on Kurt Swan. That would have been something.
0: Now, I had read somewhere that the Flash Gordon newspaper strip was something that you enjoyed and had some influence on you creatively. Is that a correct thing? Oh, yeah, yeah, the the
1: Alex Raymond stuff, the 30s stuff. When I was about 15, 16 on my first cons, an article called Nostalgia Press, run by the late Woody Gilman, published first a hardcover. And so when I was 15, yeah, you know, I I should look as good as that. And, well, that was not possible. But it was something to strive for. And it didn't look like Marvel Comics, which sent me to the side of the Marvel doctrinaire discipline, which is kind of based on probably Sam Rosen and then John Costanza, as we got into nineteen seventy. And I never looked at anything like that. But no one said I should. There was no Marvel style sheet, which kind of surprises me after all this time.
0: That's cool that Gaspar Saladino did that first page for a lot of the new letterers. It sounds like when people would join Marvel and go off of the Kirby or Bushema layouts, it sounds like it's a similar concept.
1: Oh, yeah, very much so. I finally met Gaspar. He, he did one convention in his life about, I think it was New York Comic Con, perhaps three years ago now. He was 88. He's kind of infirmed by then. He's he's died since then. But his son-in-law, I had him in a wheelchair. just kind of take him around. And, you know, the word got out to Todd Klein, who was acquainted with the man, and then myself, and just all the way down the line. So Janice Chang was there, and Iliopolis, who's there, and it's like, you know, a dozen supplicants just kneeling in front of him and weeping because it's Gaspar Saladino. It's, wow, it's the grandest. I'm talking to Alex Rand, Benjamin. <laughs> if you look back with informed eyes, you can see he was lettering the top books. He was lettering Superman to the 40s, all the dialogue. Offhand, I can't recall what all, but, you know, looking through the archives and the essentials and whatever these formats are called these days. The best work was his, the best dialogue styles, all through action comics and detectives and the backups and the lead stories. There he is on the the, the Daily and Sunday strips in the 40s. There he was. Gasper? No, no, Ira.
2: Ira, Ira. That's what I thought. I wasn't sure. Yeah.
1: And lettering okay. covers up until about 1967 or so, and then suddenly this rapid succession, actually kind of gradual, but suddenly they were all Gaspar. Very different approach, but Carmine wanted more crackle in there, and Ired's stuff had gotten kind of the same. His 40s and 50s cover lettering, though, was incredible.
2: Well, it's kind of Somebody sad because it, right after he was put out to pasture, about six months later, he dropped dead. And yeah. a lot of people think it's because he lost the direction of his life by being kind of forced out
0: well
1: that happens to people who retire from general motors too i mean you know sure. you be on the line and then that there's a break in the continuity there's no more the physical activity neil told me because uh, i worked at continuity for a while but uh, i rented space i didn't actually work in the, the continuity of reality but you know neil likes to spin stories because he met everybody you should interview him but he said to ira you know you know ira you're an old man you should take some time off and his hands would tremble a bit but give him a pen staff and a drawing table. And he was rock solid because he was focusing on the pen. He was focusing on the outcome. And I'm sure that'll issue of all of us. You know, one of these days, you know, we're made a Jr., a Sr., Alex Toth died at his drawing table. A, a good death. Delivert right. finished his last issue of Submariner, then he died. But he finished the issue. that's amazing
2: and it's a testament to how great these guys were what they did and their output and how classic it is to this day you know we're talking about michelangelo or leonardo da vinci because we're such fanboys ourselves but these were the works that really changed our lives in many ways i think if i can speak for the rest of y'all this brings us to what's arguably the funnest portion of our podcast and that would be the Weekly Rant. And we're going to start with our guest star, Tom. And Tom, do you have anything to rant about, good or bad, about comics in these years that you've been in the industry?
1: I think comics are just so wonderful because they are kind of adjunct to our lives. They allow us to kind of shake off our inhibitions. There's an indie comics, well, I'm, I think every principal city and every secondary city has an independent comics con at least once a year. There's one here in town called Genghis Khan. <laughs> it's run by a fellow who does <laughs> posters for bands for clubs, for a local sandwich shop, which has like five locations and they create a new sandwich every month as a special it is a special poster for that it is you know I send him t-shirts for local cinemas wonderful guy and Genghis Khan gets vendors out from New York state. Someone was just here from Southern California from all the four or five surrounding states. And the energy in that room is just fantastic. No one's drawing costume heroes. People are just doing their whimsy. They're doing the adventures that they think are valuable. They're doing personal stories about surviving, you know, cancer or what have you. And comics, unfortunately in the last 50 years has been costumes for the most part, but go to a comic shop and an awful lot of them have no costumes. You'd argue that Harley Quinn wears a costume, but not really. It's difficult to say. There's talk of Marvel cutting back from publishing monthly books in favor of just trade paperbacks and make this laugh or maybe it won't. But people like to produce comics, and that's the most amazing thing to me is the prices get out of the control, and no one can really make a living if they're doing indies. They want to do them anyway. It's just so wonderful to see that people have not given up that desire to do comics, even when they know they don't have a snowball's chance of getting to DC and Marvel, because they don't want to do DC and Marvel. They just want to do fun stories and have a good time and work with other people and meet other people. And truly, that's that's where I came in, doing zines when I was 15 and 16. We didn't know we were going to be working in Iron Man inside of, you know, four or five years. We just wanted to do adventure stories, Edgar Arsboro's adventure-type stories. So,
2: hey comics. That brings us to your rant, Jim. What do you have to rant about this week?
3: Mine is not going to be yay comics at the moment because <laughs> I am I am pissed off, to be honest. Mine was, is about uh, Comic Con. This this would have been my San Diego, but I could just say Comic Con now because no one else is allowed to use the word Comic Con except San Diego because of the recent uh, court decision. But right. Comic Con pissed me off. I have been going for, I believe, 24 years in a row. I'm going to go this year, but I'm not going to go with my regular badge as a fan because I could not get a ticket this year. The notion that it's become such an ordeal that I couldn't actually get a regular badge this year is to me the opposite of what fandom is supposed to be. And I'm mad about it. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm mad about the judicial decision that said that, that no one else can actually be a Comic-Con. I think we go to Comic-Cons all the time, and I it reminds me of Disney trying to control words as well. It's, it's the same part of the same problem. So that's my rant, and I am pissed off. And that brings us to Alex. Alex, you seem a little,
0: like, bemused by the entire thing, but how do you feel this week, and what's your rant? Well, you know, we all read a lot of different comics as time goes on, but... I've been appreciating Chester Gould in circa 1935 for Dick Tracy comic strips. I love the earlier stuff too, but as I'm getting into his 1935-1936 phase, I'm loving the way the art is looking. There's almost a Dick Sprang quality to it, 10 to 15 years before Dick Sprang was doing Batman. And there's that fun, slick, cartoony visual style to the strips that I've been getting through this past weekend. It's true, he is not an Alex Raymond artist on a Sunday. But I will say, I love the stories. I love how he pays tribute. I don't know if it's paying tribute or just illustrating how infamous some famous criminals are, like the Ma Barker group, Al Capone, John Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde. I just love that he inserts those characters into the 30 strips. I love the quality of art that feels like Dick Sprang before there was a Dick Sprang. And I wanted to highlight that, and if anyone out there hasn't had a chance to look at it, I highly suggest it. It's really fabulous. And nobody did
2: a midget and a plus-size gal justice like he did. <laughs> Let's just spell short backwards. That's his name. You know, Jerome trose That's his name. So that brings me to my rant. And, yes, I have another yay comics rant myself, but mine is a love letter per se to all of our fans. And yes, we have a few out there and I'd like to thank you guys for listening to us. And I'd like to thank you for making it possible for us to get to the point where we could have a major guest like Tom with us today. The wonderful thing about podcasts is, is it adds to the entire love of comics for me. I know it does for Alex and Jim. Uh, I've done more in comics and video game production, but I have to say, I have enjoyed working with you guys so much on these podcasts. It gives a new dimension to our love of comics, I think, and it gives us a way to tell people what that is. If they don't get to cons, if they don't, they might be shut-ins. They might be people that have kids and can't get out as much as they'd like to. But I'd like to say, hooray for podcasts. We do have a following, and I want to thank you guys that are listening to us today. And I most of all, today, I'd like to thank Tom Morzikowski. Tom, it's been a supreme honor for me, and it's been so much fun. And we've been friends for at least five years on Facebook, but to get to talk to you face to face, as it were, because we can see each other, it's been great. And I'll let Alex and Jim have an outro moment with you themselves, because I know they probably feel similar to how I feel. Alex?
0: Well, I grew up reading those X-Men comics that you were a part of, so it's a huge treat for me. And also, I love the comments and your historical insights in the Comic Book Historian Facebook group. And you've always been really just a real gem as far as your knowledge in the industry, of the arts, of just comic book history in general. It's been a real treat for me personally. This brings us to the man who always tries
2: to get a word up on me, and that would be you, Jim Thompson. What do you have to say?
3: Well, Bill, I just want to say that your rant was very nice. I spent my your birthday yesterday not getting a badge, so I'm I'm mad. But Tom, <laughs> that aside, it has been really, really great for having you. I always appreciate your breadth of your knowledge because you do add things and you add insight. To it, And it's great fun to have you as a member on comic book historians. It makes our job more rewarding to have people like you at knowing that you're actually we're doing something right where you're actually following and participating Mm -hmm. with us. I can't say what a joy that is when someone like you says, oh, that's a nice horse or responds to something. It's great. And we appreciate it. And this has been really fun. And thank you
1: us being part of a community of people who care this passionately about this kind of silly stuff